Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and AHA That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 175 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of today? Well, what I can tell you is that Andrew Horning is a coach and teacher at the Hoffman Institute, an organization dedicated to transformative education, spiritual growth, and dimensional leadership for those seeking clarity in their personal and professional lives. As the creator and host of the podcast Elephant Talk, Andrew encourages couples to have courageous conversations for the sake of a deeper connection. He's the co-host of the Hoffman podcast, a keynote speaker, and a volunteer and former board chair for Intercambio Uniting Communities. Andrew earned his master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Michigan and is a former licensed private practice psychotherapist. He lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife of nearly two decades and their two children. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you today on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show, Lisa. Well, it's lovely to have you, and uh, I'm really excited, as I know the listeners and the podcast subscribers will be as well. Let's dig in and talk about specifically your most recent, recently released book. So my understanding, it's Grappling White Men's Journey from Fragile to Agile, which focuses on the most urgent issues facing America today. So in your understanding, what do you believe are the most urgent issues that are facing America today, Andrew? Well, it, we are in the midst of change, change both for uh, men and women, but also for white people as more and more um, we are being challenged by our privilege. And mm. I think that's a, a good thing, but it also is going to require that we step up and be ready to meet that challenge because it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. And we've got to, to build the kind of resources to help make us better at navigating the change that is so imminent. Well, it's really fascinating, and I think it's even more so fascinating to be talking about this, specifically being the premise of your book, when we know the racial divide, and we know this is not new. This is a resurgence. These are old, suppressed issues. People have been marginalized. People have been oppressed. Uh, Things are coming to the surface now. There's no denying. uh, There's no turning a blind eye. There's no saying, not in my backyard anymore. So I would be even more so interested in knowing what it means for you as a white man being cognizant of your privilege 
but the ways in which you now may re-identify or whatever you feel might be your newly defined relationship in trying to fit into the world that we see right now where there there is ongoing systemic racism. Do you do you, do a lot of white men carry shame right now? I mean, you're you're asking such great questions. You you talk about shame. I think um, I think it's always there, whether mm. we're aware of it or not. And and you use the word in your question. You use the word re-identify. And I think that is partly why there is shame. Is because whiteness has been so ingrained in our identity that we're not even aware of it. Mm. So to undo racism and to talk about white privilege and white supremacy is so hard for white people because it's so tied up in our identity that I think that's just the most important thing for people to first sort of breathe into and take a breath and understand the scope of whiteness as uh, our identity. And so that this is going to be such challenging work because if I'm not that, who am I? Mm. And that's a scary, it's a scary proposition. It is. It absolutely is. So what do you say to whether it's, you know, former clients of yours when you were a psychotherapist or whatever it is that you might discuss on your podcast or, or different segments that would encapsulate this within your book? But when you talk about um, maybe, you know, say a white man who is not in his ego, somebody who has committed himself to doing the work and says, you know, I feel like I'm getting a bad rap, right? I'm not that white police officer that beats on, on, on black, innocent, unsuspecting people who just based on the color of their skin, wrong place, wrong time. You know, obviously there's, there's racial profiling. Um, there's again, abuse of authority, things of that nature. What do you say to the evolved, the self-actualized white privileged man who says, you know, I, I am into multicultural. I immerse myself in all populations. I am the, t- I'm the type of person, even in my home, I, you know, everyone's invited and has a seat at the table. I'm not here to segregate anyone. This isn't who I am. And they might even say it's not even in their so-called family lineage. So uh, how do even white men interact with each other on this subject? Well, you know, um, you ask a a great question about the evolved white man who does understand the issue, does see the problem. Um, um, And I think part, you know, Robin D'Angelo says that the progressive white person is perhaps more damaging than the unconscious white person because we, if we see ourselves as, as progressed and evolved, sometimes we can opt out of the work or we can mm-hmm. point the finger at other people. Um, we can say we're above it all. But, but racism is, is, lives in systems, mm-hmm. not, in, not just in people. It lives in systems. So we have to get that we might consider ourselves not racist, but we have to consider that the society is built on racist foundations. And so even though we might not see ourselves, we're still a, a byproduct of the world we live in. So we have to not 
opt out of the work, not opt out of hard discussions. Uh, you know, there's a term called white silence, and it's this idea that we won't challenge other white people on their racism. And so to your last part of your question, I think part of what we have to do with each other is to gently but courageously ask people, is that it? Might there be some racism in there? Get curious. How does whiteness play a part in what you're saying? Introduce it into the conversation. And it's so new that it, it can be uncomfortable. But part of grappling is that the discomfort is the doorway to change. Fantastic, Andrew. Gotta, Fantastic. Gotta go right through that discomfort to to step into a better world and a and a better you as well. Absolutely. Well, I understand that we live in a world that, you know, it, it's premised on dual realities and polarities and things of that nature. But when you're working with, and you would probably fall into this distinction of category, because again, as a former psychotherapist, I mean, for you to do that kind of work and to work so intimately with other people and being on the receiving end of disclosures and, and trying to um, help them with their blocks or, or help them with their own self-actualization or revolution process. Um, what do you, for, for people who, let's say, and I'm not saying religious, but people who are very much in the spiritual realm. So when people, you know, they see themselves as a soul, they don't even see themselves as the, in the material physical world of, uh, you know, this is my vessel, you know, but, but I'm, I'm a soul. I'm, I'm really about seeing myself as interconnected. We are one. Um, so not to, you know, and I know people take issue, particularly people of, of color or different ethnic background. They say, you know, it really kind of bothers me when people say, oh, I, I don't see that you're black. I see that we're all the same. And I understand it on both parts. But for somebody who really is just like, you know, I don't play in the playground of racial divide. I don't play in the playground of, you know, only seeing your color, defaulting to your color, and that being the predominant indicator of who you are at the soul level as a person. If you're kind, I don't care what your color you are. If you are evolved, I don't care what color you are. If you exercise compassion, empathy, you know. So how do you, how do you interact, even within your own relationship with self, Andrew, and for what it is that your life's work has been premised on? How do you reconcile the reality of what we know exists out there, particularly the relationship as it speaks to men uh, with themselves, as well as men with their external world and everyone else who cohabits in the world, their, their playground. But people who just, you know, like, I feel like we're not making progress when we keep talking about all the things that have kept us stuck. It's not to negate the issue. It's not to dismiss the issue. But I don't have a problem. I want to get along with everybody, providing you're a good person. I don't care, you know, what your hair looks like or what your skin looks like or the language that, in which you speak. How do you deal with somebody who just thinks this is just such utter nonsense because they're operating at the soul level? You know, um, I, I, think, I think, again, great questions. I appreciate uh I appreciate that because I think there are people who do that. It's not hypothetical. It is, it is a sector of people who, it, it, on one hand, it has a deeper component. I see people's spirit. I mm -hmm. see underneath 
color. Mm-hmm. I see a people's soul and I'd like to connect with people's soul at a deeper level and not at this superficial level that, um, that people engage in. So I get that argument and it has a couple, it has a couple blind spots. The first one is this idea of, of, um, uh, universalism. You mentioned it, but you know, it's a function of privilege to say you don't see color. Yes, it is very a function true. Of privilege to say you don't see color. I can say that as a white person, but black and brown people walk out into a world that is highly racialized. Mm-hmm. The, the, the white people exist in, on the uh, front of currency. They exist in religious figures. They exist in media, predominate in media. I mean, we live in a racialized world. The corporate structure is made up 90% of of white people, uh, the leadership executive structure. And so we can say that, but it's not a a reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes to, to say it is to miss the person for who they are and the lived experience that they have. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll just have to say, because part of the work I do is to dig down into the shame and the struggle and to help people look at it in the eye. And one of the things that you do, one of the things I've learned is that when you help people navigate uh, a dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. they get to live to see another day in a more beautiful, powerful way and realize that we are not our shame. And so there are a certain group of people who engage in a kind of spiritual bypass. And that's that I am light and I don't want to look at the darkness. And I think we have to look at, we're all, uh, we all have racist patterns mm-hmm. because we've been raised in a, in a racist world. We all have sexist patterns because on some level, the patriarchy still exists. So those don't need to be blocks. That's just, let's start there mm-hmm. and let's move forward. Let's not try and um, uh, disown the hard parts of what we've learned in our society. Let's begin there and then we can learn to work with them the, rather than to ignore them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the main objective? You know, like, um, in like we, we know in terms of the world that we all strive to want to live in, we want our children and our grandchildren to inherit a place that's much more loving, kind, peaceful, respectful than what we have. Um, so we know what the ultimate goal is, but specifically as it breaks down in your book and the points that you highlight, Andrew, you know, let's talk about the process. Let's talk about uh, even from uh, your previous vocation as a former psychotherapist. So if this was a a pattern that you saw playing out with, say, your your white men clients, um, and you knew what was required, and you knew what some of the other pieces were at work, even at the subconscious level, that were creating this misfire or uh, contributing to their level of shame, perhaps, with their fellow human being. What's the process? Because I know the listeners and the podcast subscribers are going to say, yeah. okay, you've identified the problem. We know that this does in fact exist. What do you then do with it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because uh, you mentioned the my previous work as a therapist, but when I worked with couples, 
this is where it kind of started. I began to see a kind of familiar theme and pattern happen, which is that the women, if, if it was a traditional heteronormative culture, the women would, would, would make the appointment, would make the call and would come in with a complaint or desire for something different. And it was often the men who would be resistant to change and defensive. And if she would just get off my back, everything would be better. And so that's what kind of first tips me off to men's unwillingness to embrace change. Mm -hmm. They were more invested in the status quo. So I think one of the things I do in the book is identify four steps. And, and the first one is to answer the call, you know, to be, to be aware of um, something in your life. Uh, Oprah says that we should listen to the whisper that we hear while it's a whisper. Otherwise it becomes a loud banging mm -hmm. and it gets really raucous. So answer the call of what you're hearing in your life or what's happening in your life, don't run from it. Mm -hmm. um, and the second one is to engage in it. And grappling is defined as engaging in a close struggle without weapons. And so we have to go towards the engagement of that struggle, but we can't weaponize it. We have to bring kindness, compassion. I call them keystone emotions where they are Courage and compassion. Courage is the gas pedal that takes us into challenging conversations, uncomfortable feelings, difficult subjects. And compassion is the brake that we have to pump when things get hard, when we get um, uncomfortable. We have to bring kindness to and compassion to ourselves. And then the third step is love the learning. You know, to, we, everybody loves to be a knower. But what about if we loved the step before knowing, which mm -hmm. is learning? Mm -hmm. We're all learning. And so to embrace the learning that is happening all around us, especially in changing times like these. And then the fourth step is to experience the kind of confidence that comes from navigating uncomfortable stuff. You come out the other side, a different, more um, uh, emotionally present person to yourself and the world around you. It's, it's really exciting. And if people can have the stamina to go through it, then they can come out the other side, uh, ready to show up uh, differently to their own life and to the people around them. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, for what you're describing, so I'm just going to play devil's advocate here, and I do that for the purpose sure. of trying to establish or gain more additional clarity, not just for my benefit, of course, but for the listening audience and the podcast subscribers as well. So in terms of what your book is premised on and, and you recognizing um, that this is, you know, this is a this is a crisis, this is something that urgently needs to be dealt with. Um, and by doing so, you have to dial it back and, and look at, okay, so let's question our false beliefs, our concepts. Let, let's look at our paradigms of thinking. Let's look at what the blueprint was that was perhaps indoctrinated on us, uh, either given the generation of when we were raised or whatever the case may be, and all of that combined. Um, is what you're describing here more so, whether you say it's a byproduct or it's a tentacle, it's just offspring of maybe the bigger, more deep-rooted issue, and it's just... Um, 
going back to gender, you know, the, the roles in which girls are raised versus how boys are raised, the, the stereotypes that come from that. And once you get immersed in embedded in those kinds of um, gender biases, that therefore creates the opening or the room for other biases in which to filter through. And hence what you're talking about in your book. So is it really deconstructing gender roles first and foremost? You know, that's why I add the uh, white men, because this combination of whiteness and gender that you yeah. just mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a power that is both potent and problematic because mm-hmm. it is deconstructing gender on some level. I mean, let's be honest, uh, roles from both race and gender give us a kind of comfort. They say, show up this way, and all we have to do is kind of play that part and we fit in. And that can be really reassuring, but if we can do the work and, and show up more authentically, mm-hmm. then, then gender just becomes part of who we are and we don't just fall into the stereotype of our particular gender. We live a more authentic life that's ultimately more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, again, not to belabor the point, but I, I think this um, brainwashing mechanism that we were all brought up with, it still carries out. It's like, you know, blue is for boys and pink is for girls. And, you know, so because we're talking about colors and we're associating those primary colors with a particular sex, and the assumption, therefore, is made that girls, when given, and, and I've seen documentaries like decades ago, I've seen uh, research documentaries that spoke to this subject. And, you know, and it would be like dolls. So even if it's a doll dressed in blue clothing versus a doll dressed in pink clothing, the doll itself is still a white doll. So I think right out of the hop, babies and toddlers are getting really screwed up and skewed in their view of what the world really looks like in terms of variety, color. Um, and, and I think unless those changes are rectified or ratified at the very beginning, then what you're setting in motion is uh, a potential teenager adult where you've got to undo and unravel and dissect what the core is for whatever those issues are that have predominantly arisen as a result of that being ingrained in them. Yeah, I think, I think you make a good point about the world we live in indoctrinating us into certain things that we may not even be aware of that we're, we're becoming a part of. And so people get really hot when you try and bring up this issue, but the, the truth is, is that it's challenging and it's uncomfortable to consider that you believe that because you learned it around you. Mm-hmm. But if you just accept, you know, for me, just accepting that I've been influenced by the, the world in which I live, the messages I got. And um, if I just accept that, then I can let go a little bit and not be so defensive and actually engage in kind of critical thinking of who am I? 
And so I love that you brought up unlearning because that is so much of what building a better life is, is that we both learn new things and unlearn old things. Absolutely. And so how, how much are we willing to unlearn the things that may have helped us earlier in our life, but are more problematic now as we grow and change? We've got to shed old belief systems. And so one of the things I love about the work that I do is it helps people develop a better relationship with change. Mm. You know, part of, part of grappling is asking ourselves, what kind of relationship do we want to have with change? Mm-hmm. And some people love it and, and thrive in it. Uh, Carol Dweck uh, talks um, so much about this in terms of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think change is the only constant. And so we have to learn how to navigate change more effectively so that we can live more comfortably in the world. Otherwise, we become invested in the status quo, invested in, in, in limiting the information that we take in And so that's why you see people get defensive and build up walls because they can't handle the change that is so prevalent in the world around them. It's hard, but if we embrace it, then the hard doesn't become so hard. If we feel like it should be easy, then we're in for a very difficult journey. Absolutely. Well, and I'm all about, you know, making correlations and distinctions. And I, I, you know, I feel, I feel on one level, deep compassion for men. I mean, I'm a mother, I've got both a son and a daughter. And I raised my children purposely, you know, both play with dolls, you know, bake in the kitchen, you know, like, there would be nothing that I would want my daughter to learn either in the way of a tactile skill, or Um, creating, innovating, uh, letting her imagination run wild. But even going back to, again, childhood and, and, and uh, gender bias, you know, we often say, okay, boys should be the one with the hammer in their hand, even if it's like the play school, Fisher Price, whatever, this is how it all starts. And we don't necessarily raise them in the same vein that we do with the girls to be the nurturers, you know, what the, if there's a baby crying, if, if both the boy and the girl are there, they're playing mom and dad, and this is the baby, well, the baby starts to cry, all of a sudden, it, you know, it's, it's systemic. It's like, well, let's put the baby over to mom, right? And yeah, yeah and yet because we forfeit the children of either gender to have the same equal opportunities, then all of a sudden when it comes time in a man's life to embark upon becoming a dad, embarking upon becoming a husband, you know, because he's been conditioned to uh, not express himself, to have to compartmentalize his feelings because it's seen as more masculine in which to do so. Um, He's seen as weak if he comes across as emotional, things of this nature. And then women wonder why their husbands don't seem, they, they seem quite despondent when it comes to child rearing. You know, they seem very detached emotionally. And and I feel for men because it, it's, you know, it, it, these problems come to the surface and marriages start to break up because then it's like, you know, the labor, uh, you know, the distribution of labor seems like 
inequitable. Um, all of a sudden it's like, you know, women are communicators, but my husband doesn't want to talk. I can tell there's something wrong. I ask him what's wrong. He clams up. He doesn't want to talk. Then I think it's me, right? Then it erodes my confidence. And now I've got trust issues. Is he having an affair? What's, I mean, this is how it goes on. And so, you know, I, I really feel for men trying to stumble their way into a state of trying to evolve because it's understood that the world is changing. You know, you can't get away with the same things that you once upon a time did. You know, men are more so than ever being encouraged to become role models, you know, to become volunteers uh, and to do it in different kinds of industries where it more typically would have been women specific or female gender driven. And so I think it, we've sent a really messed up message and we've wanted men to evolve faster uh, than what's been allowed for them to, to become equipped, to even understand what, what did change because now all of a sudden people have different expectations of me. And, and I don't even know where those expectations came from. I'm just going on the fact that I was raised this way. This is how my dad conducted himself. This is what my dad's marriage to my mom looked like. Uh, this was perhaps what he was able to get away with. These were the things that we were not able to talk about at home. If my daughter, you know, if my sister had a meltdown, daddy dealt with my sister's meltdown quite differently than my meltdown. I, I, I think I feel sorry for men, actually. <laughs> I, I think we're up to the task. I, I do think if we want to play the victim card, there's lots of evidence out there that would make us feel uh, bad and marginalized by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's lots of opportunities to learn and grow and undo some of these things mm -hmm. that we've been socialized and conditioned into being. And ultimately, if you challenge men and say, that person who you've been being, that's a persona. That's not you. It's mm -hmm. inauthentic. Mm -hmm. if, if people can get that to play the role that they've been socialized to play is inauthentic, then we can do it from a kind of enlightened self-interest that I'm helping myself and I'm also helping the world around me because I'm undoing some of these early uh, messages that I got about roles and relationships and um the one you said that really just oh lisa just uh crushed my heart was this and i and i know it as a man which is that feelings are weak mm. and i think if we just look at the damage that has been wrought among men who've been taught that to feel is to be weak Right. Um, the cost of that is just incredible, right? Mm, it is. It absolutely is. And, um, you know, and, and I think in, unless everybody societally recognize this and the paradigms of thinking begin to truly ultimately shift again, as young as when a couple has a baby, a baby is born. And in this particular case, you know, a, a male baby, a boy, um, you know, we have to raise them with the foresight of knowing that they're potentially going to become a father. They're going to become a husband. They need to feel comfortable with what it means to nurture. 
and to feel vulnerable and to show up for their wife, to cry in front of their wife, um, to say, I have a problem and I don't begin to believe that I have all the answers, you know, and again, without the shame, because I think anywhere along the lineage of a boy growing, evolving into a young man, into a man, into a, a husband, into a father, you know, it, unless those paradigms of thinking are changed, you know, things are, are unconsciously or consciously unlearned uh, to, to disband what the stigmas are, recognizing, first of all, what in fact they are, where within that uh, one has uh, had to assimilate to that type of upbringing, uh, that type of value-based, gender-based, this is how you operate, these are the ways you operate and conduct yourself that conversely are quite different from, say, your sister uh, or your wife or your whatever. Um, It's you know, we have to remember that when these boys are being raised, because everybody wants to statistically, when, we, when we're talking about what's happening now with, you know, the police rioting, uh, what happened uh, more notably, you know, that last summer and George Floyd and things of that nature, people get surprised. Like, where's all this rage coming from? Where's all this white rage, abuse of power? You know, why are police doing this? Why are, you know, and again, it's not to paint everybody with the same brush and say that, uh, you know, everybody who's a police officer is abusive and and abuses their privileges or their power or their authority. I'm not saying that. But, you know, it just, it, it, it galls me and it shocks me when we see statistically, why is it that more often than not, it's women fleeing domestic violence and they're in the women's shelter movement, you know? Again, not dismissing that women themselves are abusers. Uh, you know, they, I'm not trying to lock it down as one uh, category of the end-all be-all for this only happens to women and this only happens to men. But the fact that people just seem to be really asleep at the switch, they don't seem to make those correlations. Well, why are men typically, you know, road ragers? Why are men total, you know, why 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 are statistics seemingly going up in the wrong direction where men are concerned when we're talking about some of these more global, broader type issues uh, where people are feeling impacted? You know, it's it's likely a man who's going to go shoot up a school or a parking lot, a mall or what, like, why is that? I it, it baffles my mind that people don't see why that might be. You know, I think, thankfully, Daniel Goldman's work when he wrote Emotional Intelligence really uh, put put emotions and intelligence together for the first time to help people understand that how we navigate our own emotional world is just as important as how smart we are. Mm-hmm. And how we navigate the emotions and our ability to perceive and read emotions in others, mm-hmm. the kind of relational component to emotional intelligence. That, those two things, one, how we relate to and manage our own emotions and how we relate to and connect with and perceive other people's emotions is incredibly important for uh, our success in this world. We mm-hmm. always used to think it was IQ. Well, if they're smart, they'll, they'll do great. IQ is not always the predictor that people attribute it to be. EQ, on That's the other right. hand, 
plays such a powerful role. Yes, absolutely. Emotional intelligence, for sure it does. And so, you know, not to to stereotype or, you know, um, I don't know that that's the right word that I use, you know, not to make broad-based assumptions, but intuitively for the work that you do, um, for what your book is premised on, for the things that are of particular interest to you and wanting to be an agent of change, where what is what are you inclined to think or believe in the viewing right now, like the landscape of what's going on on the global stage? Do you think people are waking up? Do you think people are becoming more consciously elevated? Do you think people are becoming more curious? Do you think people are starting to connect the dots a little bit more uh, on themselves in correlation to the relationship that they have with the outside world? What their their for needs to possibly change? Uh, what what you know? Do you think people are are still predominantly asleep, or do you think people are predominantly waking up, or do you think we're evolving in the way that we're, for the most part, we're, we're getting on that board of self-actualization and majority are there. Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good question. Like, where are we headed? What's happening? Mm -hmm. Can we, can we try and put a finger on the pulse of the recent events and the recent period to say, uh, what's the trajectory of, of what's the arc of what's happening and here's what I would say. I would say kind of two things at the same time. And on one hand, for a while there, uh, you know, the, the Ibram X. Kendi's book um, about uh, being an anti-racist was a New York Times bestseller, along with Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility was a New York Times bestseller. There was a huge wake-up call, as unfortunate as the George, as tragic as the George Floyd murder was, as mm -hmm. tragic as at times the Trump presidency was, it woke the middle up in our country to move left and say, wait a minute, mm -hmm. I've been asleep. I didn't realize this was happening. And we became reeducated. I mean, I'm an American history major, and I didn't know about the, um, the race murders in Oklahoma city. I wasn't taught that. And so that that's one of so many understandings and awakenings of a deeper, more compassionate, more rounded out, uh, understanding of the black experience, black and Brown experience in the United States. So that is a good thing. And unfortunately it's painful and it's ongoing. Uh, but it's a good thing. But at the same time, what has also been happening is on the, uh, the extreme on the right has been like fortifying the walls, uh, a kind of backlash, Lisa, where people are now feeling victimized and, and, and they're um, sort of circling the wagons of their belief system and, and demonizing this movement, mm -hmm. you know, all big social movements uh, have this kind of backlash. And, and this is what we're seeing, especially in the, the US where voting rights laws are being restricted and limited in Georgia and in other states, as if um, it, it was needed, and it wasn't needed, but it's an attempt 
to kind of keep the status quo the way it is. So it's, it, it has me concerned because on one hand, a, a whole group of people are, are waking up to a deeper understanding of something. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, there's also a group of people that is hardening their belief systems and putting in uh, positions and laws that are making it harder to change. It's a little confusing for mm-hmm. some people to understand. Uh, and it, it breaks my heart a little bit because I don't see a unified movement going forward. Hmm. Well, in the bio, uh, I noticed that you are a dad, you have two children. So are you concerned about what the world may look like for them going forward? Do you think it's going to improve? Do you think it's going to like, it's just going to, you know, plateau, stagnate? Uh, Do you think it's going to worsen? I mean, you being very on point with the abstract, the nuance that's associated within the world that we live in, right? You don't see things as see things as one dimensional. You can do what you do for a living and and see the world that way. Um, so knowing that that has altered the ways in which you would more consciously want to raise your children, you can only do your part. When it becomes time for them to flee the nest, what do you think that they're flying into? Are, are you feeling uh, com- comfortable, confident? Are you anxious? What, what are your feelings as a father? I, I'm, I'm anxious for them, but, but I also know that, you know, every period in history has had its challenges. True. So, uh, to a certain extent, is this more or less than what previous generations have faced? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that I, you, you, thank you for the compliment about seeing things more than one dimensional. It reminds me of the Carl Jung mm. quote that says, the paradox is our most valued spiritual possession. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, I talk about it in the book, I do think holding paradox is an important skill because it is a both and. It's not black and white. We can't simplify it. And too often, and so when I raise my kids, one of the things I, as I, as we are raising them, we're trying to help them understand that things live in the both and. Mm-hmm. It's not always clean and easy. That if it's too simplistic, question it. Yes. Build your tolerance for difficult conversations. Build your tolerance for difficult feelings. Build your tolerance for critical thinking that the world needs you to show up and have the muscle to be able to navigate it in its nuanced ways. Because if we're looking for simplistic, easy answers, we're going to be disappointed. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so being cognizant of time, Andrew, I'd love to give you the opportunity to let the listeners and the podcast subscribers know where is it that they can uh, purchase a copy of your book and what, what's upcoming on the horizon in terms of maybe, uh, and I know COVID and restrictions and things of that nature differ from state to state, province to province, country to country. Um, but in terms of anything upcoming where you might be on the stage, uh, or you might be at a book signing or even just information pertaining to your podcast, how can people further know more about you and, and your bodies of work and, and connect with you personally, even for a consultation? 
Great. Yeah. So thank you. It's andrewhorning.co. And uh, that will take you to some information about the book and you can purchase it on Amazon or bookshop. Um, And uh, I also did a podcast years ago, uh, recording couples talking to one another, and that's called Elephant Talk. And that's elephanttalk.org. And that was designed to uh, help sort of uh, name the elephant in the room of, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the changing dynamics of couples. What I wanted to do was um, put a mic in front of each per- person in the couple and have them sort of talk about the struggles and challenges in their relationship. So that's elephant talk, org and andrewhorning.co. And of course the Hoffman process, which is a week long retreat uh, in California and Connecticut, we have two sites. That's hoffmaninstitute.org. And my work is unaffiliated. Uh, the book I wrote is is not um, affiliated with them. That's mm-hmm. separate work, but that's a powerful, immersive retreat. And um, it's uh, beautiful work. Um, but I'm grateful for this conversation. You leave me inspired, and I love that this is the kind of work that your listeners and subscribers get to have as a part of their weekly experience. Well, that's wonderful, Andrew. And I I certainly appreciate your kind words. And it's been a real delight talking to you because these are the types of subject matters I could talk about at nauseum. I mean, I I went to school for women's studies and sociology and, uh, you know, I was a childcare worker and worked in social services, crisis management uh, specifically for 25 years. So, um, wow. a lot, yeah, <clears throat> a lot of what you're talking about really hits home for the dynamics, uh, that I used to be up close and personal to, uh, again, in, in crisis management. And, uh, and that was working with all, <clears throat> pardon me, populations of people. And this is when they were at their rawest. And this was when they were in crisis and they were struggling and, uh, and of course, you saw all socioeconomic backgrounds, you saw, you know, everything. I mean, there wasn't anything that I think could possibly have happened to another human being, either having been self-imposed or perpetrated or, you know, the intergenerational cycles of toxicity and, and uh, abuse and dysfunction that continues to play out from one generation to the other. And having seen a couple generations, uh, it's... Uh, the work is always there to be done. And, you know, I, I just want to applaud you and commend you on what it is that you're doing, because um, a lot of people would say that's not very attractive work. I mean, you know, men, men are perceived as intimidating in some cases, again, call it a stereotype, call it, you know, whatever. Um, But these are, are very difficult discussions to want to break the ceiling on and have with people more specifically men who systematically and intergenerationally have been brought up to be disconnected from these kinds of subjects. So you've definitely had your work cut out for you, but I think the buy-in, what I think what, what would allow men to comfortably trust you and to resonate with you is the fact that this messaging is coming from a fellow man um, who's been quite willing to own his own stuff. Therefore, I have heard that. I've heard that from people that when, a woman comes in and delivers this kind of message or a black or brown person that it's easier to say, Oh, of course that's what's their angle. Why are they doing this? And I do think 
it's incumbent upon uh, white people and white men in particular to speak up around this because we have the the privilege of being seen as unbiased around these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, if if there was any question that I did not perhaps ask you, but there's something that you would like to say before we wrap up that you think is 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 imperative in which to mention, please, you've got the floor. Go ahead and, and say whatever else you'd like to say. Thanks. I think the only thing to add is that this this kind of deep dive into our own personal growth pairs well with uh, the external work of challenging our socialized patterns of, of, of questioning what we've learned as a result of our conditioning and challenging the status quo around us. Too often people uh, fight change externally like I'm going to be a proponent and advocate for change in this systemic world, or they do personal growth work inside them. And part of grappling is to say, actually get, get the connection, yes. engage in the kind of deeper level work that helps you make the connections to connect the dots mm-hmm. between what is happening inside of us and what is happening between us as well as what is happening around us. And if we well can said. do that, we build momentum. Absolutely. Well said, Andrew. I just want to say once again, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. Uh, these are my favorite kinds of core subjects in which to talk about, and certainly anything that has the potential to precipitate uh, much-needed change, uh, I'm all in. So thank you for giving myself and the listeners and the podcast subscribers an opportunity to go deep with you and for your revelations, your insights, and again, all your contributions for what you do to make this world a better place, not just for your own two children, but for everyone's children. So thank you so much for that. Uh, to the Lisa, listening I audience. love to the conversation. Oh, thank you. Well, you're welcome to come back anytime. You know you are. And to the listening audience, thank I you. want to thank you very much for the gift of your time for tuning in to myself and my phenomenal guest of today, Andrew Horning. Um, I encourage you to reach out to him and certainly to purchase a copy of his book. And uh, I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. Until next Friday when we're joined by yet another amazing guest, I wish you all my very best. Love and gratitude to everyone. Take care and to you as well, Andrew. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Halton Honda, Forever, and AHA That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero, be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.